Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Thank you, Carl and Sarah, and welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Courtney Reagan in today for Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the road ahead for investors following a hotter-than-expected inflation report. We are just one week away from the Fed's next rate decision. So does today's CPI print change anything? Plus, more pain in the tech trade as Apple shares slide again today. Our investment committee standing by to debate all of it. Joining us for the hour is Steve Weiss, Joe Terranova, and Carrie Firestone. So let's give you a quick check on the market at noon Eastern, marginally higher across the board for the major indices. So losing a little bit of steam here as we just come on the air. Shares of Apple down about a third of a percent. Energy is the laggard when it comes to the sectors, down about eight-tenths of a percent. And utilities leading the way here higher by about one percent. As mentioned, the VIX is just trading below four. So things feeling a little calm here, even though we are in the September month of potential seasonality. Joe, what do you make today of the CPI number? Hotter than expected, but trending in the right direction, would you say? 50-50 for November in terms of a rate hike. So I don't think we did anything to gain a a degree of clarity what that move is going to be in in November from the Federal Reserve. I think it just added to an overall environment for the month of September. I was asked last evening at dinner, how would you describe the month of September in the equity markets? And I responded with sharply unchanged. (laughs) And that's how it really feels. Markets seem to be going to a lot of different places. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of complexity. But I think the one thing that should be comforting for investors is two things have not happened. Number one, we have not defeated the prevailing bull trend of 2023. There's still that strength. And volatility remains at low levels. And I think that's encouraging. But for the moment right now, there's not much visibility in terms of what the CPI report is going to motivate the Federal Reserve to do in November. There's not clarity in terms of which particular asset class is going to lead as we move into the month of October. It seems to be about two places where investors could go. You could go to energy or you could turn back to the mega caps, excluding Apple to find a near-term opportunity. Other than that, sharply unchanged. Hmm, Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, energy prices, obviously, we're talking about the sector here in the intro and then crude oil up about $89 a barrel and obviously energy prices really impacting the CPI. Carrie gasoline was up 10.6% in August. That's over half of the increase. I know we strip out food and energy, but for everyday Americans, those prices really matter. Yeah, uh, obviously it hurts where oil prices are today. But what the Fed cares about really is PCE, which will be coming. And I think the sign that we can really look at the core, which was less than expected, 2.4 versus 3.1 last month, as a sign of what the Fed will be thinking about when they consider when to raise rates, because they like to look at sort of the stripped down numbers, and those are trending in the right direction. 
rent continues to come down. That's right. And rent has been a big factor in inflation since it began that acceleration last year, uh, more than a year ago. So, I, you know, I, I feel that, you know, it's, as Joe says, you know, we've got uh, some good and some bad in these numbers, but uh, the market feels the same way. You know, it's up a little bit. It's, mm -hmm. not, it's not dramatically going in one direction or another. And I feel that that's part of this, you know, treading water. We're waiting to see what happens with earnings. We're in this hiatus period between last earnings cycle and this earnings cycle. And Fed's not going to raise this time. So, you know, let's get to earnings and see what companies are starting to say with labor markets perhaps easing up and some possibly higher revenue numbers. Okay. Uh, you know, Joe, uh, Joe, excuse me, Steve Weiss, um, I want to bring you Please into this call. conversation. <laughs> I know you're right here, Joe. Steve, um, um, I want to bring you More into this here. conversation. <laughs> and, um, obviously, we're talking about the markets, not sort of having a huge reaction, but but losing a little bit of steam here as we come up, uh, upon the 12 o'clock hour. What do you think that the market is making of this number? Seeing it like Joe sees it, 50-50, there's a little bit of good, there's a little bit of bad. Yeah, look, I, I think it's rare that you have any economic number, the details of it, that are decidedly one way or the other. And that's what makes markets tough. And frankly, that's what makes the Fed's job tough as well. Uh, otherwise, everybody would be investors and everybody would be up a lot each year. So there was some good number, as Carrie pointed out, when you're seeing rents come down, used cars prices continue to come down. But the but it's kind of interesting is that the bond market's taking it one way with yields moving higher, and the equity market is taking it a different way with prices moving higher. And I think the minor sell-off from the peak this morning, which wasn't a lot of volume, is occasioned by what's tomorrow's number going to look like, PPI. I personally don't think the Fed's going to go again, absent a big number tomorrow, because now they're sitting back and we're seeing this delayed reaction relative normal cycles on the massive tightening cycle they've had. So what you're set up for now, assuming the Fed doesn't go, is a different earnings reporting period we've seen over the last year or so, which is that expectations have moved up. So earnings estimates are going higher. And will the market be able to realize those higher estimates? So you set the bar higher while you still are coming under the multiple expansion that's driven the market. So I think that's not a great setup, frankly. Uh, you know, we're seeing now uh, GDP estimates come down for the next quarter uh, and for the fourth quarter. So I think the market's in the sort of spot where, you know, to Joe's point, it's sort of not fish, not fowl, and it's just in a consolidation phase with potentially the risk to the downside, much more so than the risk being to the upside, in my view. We talked a lot about November, of course, but today's CPI report comes just one week ahead of the next Fed decision, which is right here in September. So Double Line CEO Jeffrey Gunlock thinks the Fed will hold steady. Here's what he told Scott Wapner yesterday at Future Proof. I think they're done. I, I, I think that uh, we have enough economic weakness. I think what's the one thing that they need to change, to be done, is they need the core PCE to drop below four. It's been at four to four and a half for about two, two and a half years. And that's the one inflation indicator that is just sideways. All the rest of them are clearly very substantially have come off their highs, not the core PCE. 
and that's because of services. Uh, and, uh, and to a certain extent, uh, wages are part of that services component. That has to come down. I think once that goes below four, and I think it's at 4.1 today, I think that will definitively make them stop. Gunlock taking a page out of Dan Ives' book with that very colorful shirt on stage yesterday. Let's bring in CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leesman. Steve, what do you make of the numbers here today? It seems, again, like most people think there's a little bit of good and a little bit of bad, and maybe it doesn't tip the Fed's hand next week. But what do you say? You're the one that knows all the answers to these questions. Ah, well, you know, I do my best. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think the idea is that it was so far so good in terms of that surge in energy prices not necessarily bleeding into other parts of the index except for maybe air transportation. Um, but I wouldn't say we're out of the woods yet on that. I think the idea of a rate hike in November is still very much on the table. Um, and, and I think the market's trading, I want to say, with a 42% probability of that November hike. I think that's about right. What has to happen is we have to pass through this energy spike, and hopefully it's temporary, but we'll see. Um, and, and then to see if that ends up affecting other parts of the index. So um, I, I think this kind of confirms or affirms the Fed's uh, policy here of taking a wait-and-see approach next, uh, I I next week at next week's meeting, but then sort of saying, you know what, we could be back on the table depending upon what happens in the following two months and their reports. Uh, because they do not see uh, inflation as a straight line down, but more of a bumpy road and route to bringing it down. Steve, it's Joe. So energy prices uh, measuring the spot crude oil in the month of September is up nearly 7 percent. Um, how do you feel the Federal Reserve will think about energy prices as we move through the fall, which historically is a time where there tends to be upward pressure on pricing? Do you think they are willing to, to accept a stubbornly high energy price? I think they're willing to accept it if it doesn't go into other areas, Joe. Um, I, I think, first of all, it will back up or support their idea of keeping rates high for quite a long time. Um, I don't think it'll prompt them to, it, it would certainly stave off the day that they would be cutting interest rates if these rates stay high. But there's an idea out there, Joe, um, that that energy prices are really consequential, um, not just for energy prices at the gas pump, but in two different ways. One is how they affect other prices because those higher prices get passed along. But maybe most importantly in psychology, uh, Americans are very, very sensitive to higher energy prices, probably beyond the amount which they spend on energy. Um, and this affects inflation expectations. If you look at a chart, Joe, of inflation expectations and uh, energy or gas prices, they kind of mirror each other very, very closely. And so the, 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 the problem for the Fed here is going to be if energy prices spike and bring along with it an increase in inflation expectations, the Fed's going to have to maybe do more to get a handle on that and, and to tamp that back down. We've been so far so good on the three and the five year. But the one year just took a tick up, and the Fed's going to watch that, I think, carefully. That's very important for their outlook on policy. Steve, if I could just follow for, for a second. I don't know if you heard Adam Parker earlier on the network, and he basically said the stock market leads the economy. How much of a problem is it, the appreciation we've seen so far year to date in the equities market and with us currently trading towards the upper end of the range, almost near at an all-time high? Is that a problem for the Fed? 
I don't think so. Um, I, I think that the, the market thinks, the, the stock market thinks the Fed thinks more about it than it actually does. Um, I, I yeah. think there are certain parameters with which the stock market can go up and down and the Fed doesn't really care that much. I think the consequential metrics for the Fed when it comes to uh, the, the, the uh, financial conditions are uh, interest rates in, in the first instance and then there's all sorts of other things they look at of which the stock market is one of them. But the New York Fed came out with an index of financial conditions not too long ago. And the stock market played a role in that, but not an especially large role. And I think the stock market can lead the economy. I think the stock market can be wrong about the economy as well. Uh, so, S Steve, I just want uh, it's Carrie, I just wanted to make two points and hear your reaction. One is in terms of the, um, the Fed and... Uh, oil prices and where the market is going. You know, I, I also believe that they care about oil prices, but oil prices are volatile, which is one of the reasons that they, uh, I would say, put less weight on them. The market often predicts the economy correctly. I'm not sure that it leads the economy, but it's pretty good at predicting. Uh, but I don't think that people react to the stock market and their spending as much as people who are living the life every day think. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know how you feel about that. Um, you know, it, th there's a wealth effect that goes on, but the wealth effect tends to really affect the wealthy more yeah. than other folks. And so that Definitely. and that and they have a lower lower propensity to consume than uh, than lower income or poor Americans. So sure. that matters, I think, less to them from that regard. Um, I think as an indication of where the economy is going, they look at it. I think that uh, as an indication of, of financial conditions, it's a part of the whole thing. But it's not the thing they look at, I think, first thing in the morning when they say how tight are financial conditions or how loose are they. I think they'll look at interest rates. I think right now what they're seeing I don't think they're upset about what they're seeing in the 10-year. I think what they're seeing right now is, is, is more of what they had hoped to maybe see earlier, which is higher rates when it comes to longer-term bonds. Um, and we'll see if that ultimately results in what would I think be a good development, which is the disinversion of the yield curve, creating a more proper structure for the banks to lend. Um, and, and that will happen, I think, if we can get inflation under control. But I do want to make one point before I go here, which is that I, I, I've been thinking about this. If the Fed's going to go again, it's not entirely clear to me they would go just once more. I'm not sure what they would gain by that. I, I don't think another quarter point either way matters very much. I think you ought to be thinking about if the Fed goes again, it's going to be more than one or it's not going to go again at all. And the data on inflation is going to determine that for the Federal Reserve. Hmm. Very interesting stuff. Steve, thank you as always for being here. Pleasure. And now to Steve Weiss, I'll ask you for your reaction. What do you make of what Steve had to say just there? I guess particularly about his expectation for if the Fed goes again, it will likely be more than once. A quarter of a point probably won't do much. If they're going to do it, they're going to go a little deeper. Yeah, I, I don't know if I agree with that uh, it, because it'll still be data dependent. So if they feel the need to go a quarter point, and, and again, I think I agree with Steve that uh, likely if they do it, be November meeting, not September meeting, uh, then they'll see what that has to bear. So I, I disagree with Steve. I don't, I don't think it's predetermined you're going once, you're going twice. Uh, that would be the case if it's your first or even your fourth hike, but we're already at a long path of hiking. 
So I don't think that plays out. What, what I think is interesting, and he, he referred to this sort of in passing, are banks and what they're doing. If you listen to Jamie Dimon yesterday, and I think I think a good part of that was his jawboning. Uh, uh, again, these are the balance sheet requirements the Fed's putting out there that'll tighten lending. Lending's already been tight at the money center banks, it's at the large banks. It's been tight for a while. Some of that's self-imposed, but you're still finding the ability to borrow money from the shadow banking system. And I think that's where the real stress and where the real issues could be if the economy goes a lot lower, if the economy goes into recession. And nobody talks about that at all because, again, it's a shadow market. But that's where the lending has been coming for the smaller businesses, even for some of the mid-sized businesses. So that remains a concern if rates continue to go higher. Hmm. Okay, that's a thread we can continue to follow as we move forward here. But if the Fed does hike again, what will that mean then for the troubled tech trade? Apple under pressure again today after the company unveiled its latest iPhone model. Stock's now down 7% this month alone. Carrie, you own Apple. Sure. Impressed, unimpressed, as expected yesterday. I mean, it seems like almost every analyst on the street just reiterated their previous rating. Yeah, well... Most everyone owns Apple, and that's because it's 7% of the S&P. We're underweight Apple. We sold some Apple two months ago because we thought it got a little ahead of itself. Uh, Apple had that enormous run. Uh, It's down 8% just since September 5th, I think. So it's, you know, really taken a sharp turn, but it's still way up from where it was. The big tech names are still dominant in terms of top four, I think, account for 45% of the S&P gains so far this year. And Apple is a very big factor uh, in the S&P. So did I think there was much new yesterday? No. Do people have to replace their iPhone? Yes. Is this a palatable choice? of course. So, you know, I I just think they have to keep making these introductions and every once in a while it's outstanding and most of the time it's just sort of, you know, okay, great, new iPhone. When I need one, when I, this one breaks, I'll get that. (laughs) So I've said this all year. Hey, Courtney, you you know, the, the, the issue, the issue on the iPhone launches is that I think they've consistently been underwhelming. I don't understand the expectation going into them. If you go back to the iPhone 10, which is supposed to be a phenomenal, the anniversary phone, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, all you talked about is it the iPhone X or the iPhone 10. You didn't talk about any of the new features. So what we've consistently seen is it's only the camera that's improved. There's not been a exciting upgrade forever. So the question is, how long do the phones last? Will you have the carriers continue to support? subsidize the purchase of the phone. They've shown no appetite to cut back on that because they want to race against one another to keep subs in place. So so I think the days of what's exciting and what's not exciting, you know, they're they're just long gone. And uh, I think it's actually a lot of waste of, of media time going out and taking a look at these launches. So it's like, so what? Who cares? I've said it all year, I know this is a controversial statement, but I do not believe that Apple in 2023 is trading off fundamentals. I think Apple is purely trading off technicals. Think of where uh, Apple was at the end of Q4 in 2022. You had hedge funds, you had a lot of people that were pushing it to the side on the belief that there was a breakdown in the stock as it went below 130. The technicals brought those people back into the stock in the spring. And I think what's happening now is something very similar. You're seeing a breakdown in the 
technicals, it looks somewhat clear to me that Apple wants to target the 200-day moving average at 165. And it really has nothing more uh, to do with some form of a, a new fundamental variable that's been introduced. Yes, the tipping point was the news surrounding China. That I understand. But since then, Apple is trading. Uh, it is diverging from other mega caps. Looks where it is month to date. I think Apple's down about 6%. Only NVIDIA is down alongside of it. Other companies like Meta, like Microsoft, like Amazon, they are all higher. Apple is right now technically oriented and the technicals look like it's going to 165. And that's from someone who's long Apple. And, and DA Davidson reiterated their neutral rating. And they say, unlike years past, we believe the company may not be able to rely on strong iPhone sales to drive its share price higher very interesting. Wherever we're sitting right now, I think it's about 175. Last I looked over. We're going to get over to Julie Borston. She has a market flash on Netflix. Hey, Julie, what's going on? Well, Courtney, Netflix shares are sinking this morning. They're now down about 4%. This happening while CFO Spence Newman has been speaking at the Bank of America media conference. He just wrapped up his comments just a few minutes ago. He said that the advertising business is still in the very early stages. He said that so far, advertising is not material to the overall revenue of Netflix. And this is something that they're going to have to build over time. He said it's not easy to build an ad business from scratch. Of course, they do have that partnership with Microsoft. Now, Newman's saying that they're nowhere near peak margins and that the positive impact from cracking down on password sharing will be felt through 2024. He said that spinoff accounts because of password sharing are skewing towards signups for the ad-free option. That could also be weighing on the stock as Netflix is working to build out ad viewership so they can sell more ad inventory. Newman also saying it's hard to see the, how, what the return on billions of dollars investment in live sports would be and that there's a very high bar not just for live sports rights but also to acquire any distressed assets, noting that Netflix has been more of a builder than a buyer. And Courtney, as for commentary on the strike. Nothing definitive there, just saying that everyone wants to get back to work. Hmm. Interesting stuff. Yeah, Julia, Netflix shares down about 4%. Joe, I understand you used to own Netflix. Anything that you just heard from Julia or even the move in the stock price that would get you to be interested in buying here on the dip, getting back in? Well, I would call the ownership a trade, and that really is what Netflix has been over the last several years. It was added to the uh, Quality Momentum ETF earlier in 2023. The reason that it was removed was because of the deterioration in revenue growth relative to what uh, Netflix has done over the last three years, which has been around 16%. Last quarter, it was only about 2%. Mm -hmm. So we, we value revenue growth. We saw the decline in the revenue growth. That's why the rules removed it from the portfolio. Uh, but Netflix really, in the last several years, has been more of a trading opportunity than a longer-term yeah, investment. I do. Twice. Yeah, look, I, I think what you're going to see out of, out of this quarter is that, uh, is that everything else side, all the noise side, and perhaps what Netflix really doesn't care to talk about, is that their cost should be way down because uh, content's not being produced. But they have this storage of content there. If you're a Netflix subscriber, of which I am, who isn't, you constantly see new programs popping up and just a massive library. So this further positions them as the leader. And frankly, I don't know why Disney went into the streaming business. I know what they thought. I don't know why they're staying in it when they're such a strong content provider. Maybe it makes sense for them to rethink that. I don't believe they will, but uh, I'd suggest that. 
Interesting stuff. Well, coming up next, the not-so-friendly skies, another major airline warning that higher costs will hit profits, how the committee is playing the travel space. That's next in our chart of the day. Halftime is back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started. Welcome back to Halftime. Let's get to our chart of the day. American Airlines shares on pace for their worst day since July. The company cutting its summer profit and margin guidance. That news is weighing on the entire airline space today. Joe, you own Delta and United in that Joe T ETF. You had to remind me of that. <laughs> um, it takes a lot to get me to be an owner of the airlines. Okay. The last several years, I feel as though the airlines have had tremendous struggles. But coming coming off of COVID, we obviously saw the benefit that the airlines received in terms of remarkable revenue growth, um, staggering over the last eight quarters. In the case of United, 99%. In the case of uh, Delta, 87%. So the momentum was there. The revenue growth was there. Unfortunately, in the most latest quarter, I think reality is setting hold with the airlines, realizing that both consumers and business travelers are going to become far more cost conscious. And we're seeing the effect of the COVID uh, revenue surge begin to fade. So I'm not overly, you know, look, you could be long and also adhere to a sentiment where you're not overly excited about what you're long. You know, that's what a portfolio is. You're not going to love everything within the portfolio at all times. So I'm not particularly excited about the airlines. We do own what we believe are two of the better airlines in Delta and United Airlines. You look at some of the other airlines, they're clearly suffering. Just look at uh, the performance of Southwest or, or JetBlue. There's significant struggles there. Um, but you really need an overwhelmingly strong economic climate for the airlines to continue their fundamental strength. And in that circumstance, we know what the reaction is going to be from the Federal Reserve. It's going to be a return to being adversarial once again. And that's going to uh, create a moment where the the, the fundamental strength that the airlines are receiving from that strong economy is just going to slam on the brakes. It is very interesting. We've been talking about how much people are willing to spend on services, on traveling, on concerts. But Weiss, obviously, the company here is just saying, look, fuel is more expensive. This new deal we have with our pilots, that's more expensive. That's cutting into costs. Joe's obviously a little concerned about the revenue growth coming back down as people sort of normalize their travel. What do you make of what's going on here with the airlines here today and then potentially a little longer term? 
Yeah, first of all, uh, if you didn't remind Joe about the airlines, I would have as an investor in your <laughs> team. Um, you know, when I used to sit in the trading desk, there was always a, uh, a, a saying, uh, the airlines are like, like beer, you only rent it. Uh, they're highly capital intensive, highly cyclical, and there was this pent up demand for travel, both on the business side and on the consumer side. But now, as the consumer's getting topped out, and as airline ticket prices, they moderate somewhat lower end, but generally elevated, uh, you're going to see this continue to atrophy. So I've been saying for months now that, that airlines had the benefit of a long cycle in terms of when you would reserve your tickets to travel. Now that that's falling off, you're going to see it go back to the cyclicality, and I don't think that tells a good story for them. So I would not be an investor in the airlines here. There's a time to do it. Unfortunately, I look at it as momentum trade. I don't Weiss, believe it's ever Weiss, I'm, a I'm going to have to cut trade. you off here. We're going to take a look at Capitol Hill. Elon yeah. Musk is leaving. This is the, the hearings on AI currently. Obviously, many of the tech leaders in focus here today. Let's uh, see if we have some sound. Um, so the, uh, I think the key point was really that um, it's important for us it's important for us to have um, a referee, just as you have a referee in a sports game uh, or all sports games, and that the games are better for it to ensure that the, 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 you know, the players obey the rules, uh, play fairly. Um, I think it is important for, for similar reasons to have a regulator, regulator, which you can think of as a referee, um, to ensure that uh, companies take actions that are safe and in the interest of the general public. Did you tell them that AI is a double-edged sword? Yes. And well, what did you mean by that? Can you, can you that? <laughs> well, what do you do the metaphor? Yeah, I mean, I mean. Well, if you have a sword with two sides, when you're, you, when one you're, side can get you, even though you're trying to get something with the other side. Right. When, when you're telling the senators that, though, That's how it what, works. what do you want them to take away I from I think that? it's more important to make sure your hilt is also, you have a hilt, not a sharp thing. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. What do you think they, how do you think they took the message that you brought to them? Well, I, I think it was, it was, it was very um, civilized discussion, actually among um, some of the smartest people in the world. So uh, I thought it was, uh, Senator Schumer did, did a great uh, a service to humanity here, along with the support of the rest of the Senate. Um, and I think we'll, um, I think something good will come of this. this I think this, this meeting may go on history as being very important for the future of civilization. Do you think some legislation is gonna come out of this? Probably, I'm not sure what the time frame of that is, but yeah. um, you know, the legislative process is not a swift one. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I, th I think it's, I think this will sit, this, things will go in the right direction generally. Um, Senator uh, Schumer or Leader Schumer uh, did uh, ask everyone to raise their hands uh, in the room to see if they were in favor of uh, AI regulation, and I believe almost everyone did. Yeah. Um, so that that's a good sign. Do you think yeah, any of the tech CEOs left and changed their minds? Do you think they were changed by anything they heard from the Senate side? Well, I can't read their mind, <laughs> but. Judging by the fact that they put their hands up when um, asked if they if they believe that some regulation is in order, um, I think they, the, the general I think it's clear that there's a strong consensus, a woman of woman consensus that sh there should be some AI regulation that it would be in the best interests of the, the people to do so, and, and I think we'll probably see something happen. I don't know what, on what time frame um, or, how, or exactly how it will manifest itself. Yeah, that's but the question. What were they going to do? I, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's, there's clearly, we've created regulatory agencies before, um, and um, actually just recently, I just before leaving, made the point that um, 
you know, while our regulatory agencies are not perfect, um, and I deal with regulators on a very frequent basis, um, with uh, automotive, um, you know, communications with Starlink, um, and then uh, FAA with, with, with rockets. So I've had uh, tremendous amount of interaction with regulators for, you know, a couple decades at least. Um, and while regulators are not perfect, I, I, there's no regulatory agency that I'm aware of that I would, I think we should, at the federal level at least, that, that we should delete. Yeah. Um, Do you think so there I, should be so a Department so of AI or something like that? Yeah, yeah I don't know what exactly. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps the Department of AI. Yeah. Um, it probably, let's say, I think the probability of there being some sort of AI regulatory agency that stands on its own, similar to the FAA or FCC, is likely at some point. You think so? I think so. Um, now, the, the, the reason that I've been such an advocate for uh, AI safety in advance of sort of anything terrible happening is that I think the consequences of AI going wrong are, are severe. Um, so we have to be proactive rather than reactive. Uh, you know, in the past, if you, if you take, say, and I, I'm being somewhat late for speaking of regulators, sure. I'm a little late for the FAA, I'm meeting with the FAA. We don't want to hold you up. <laughs> but, sure, but, um, yeah, if you take the example of, of say, seatbelts. Seatbelts um, were opposed by the auto industry for a very long time, even though the data was very clear that they're safe, uh, that they, they radically improve uh, deaths and injuries. Um, so, you know, we, we don't want to be in that situation where we're fighting regulations, even though, you know, there's a safety thing. We can't wait for millions of people to die in auto accidents. As, you know, like, and it's important to just elevate the question here. The question is, is, is really one of civilizational risk. So it just it's, it's not like one group versus another, one group of humans versus another. It's like, hey, this is something that's potentially risky for all humans everywhere. It's very important to, to, to understand that. Is there an equivalent of that? Do you think right. Congress is sufficiently ready to regulate AI? No, no, not yet. No, the, 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 the sequence of events will not be um, jumping in at the deep end and, and making rules. But, but the, it, it starts with an, with insight. Um, in fact, this is actually how all of the regulatory bodies have been formed, I believe, uh, is you start with a group formed to create insight, to understand the situation. Uh, then you have proposed rulemaking. Um, you'll get some objections from industry or whatever. Um, and then ultimately, you, you, you get sort of a consensus on rulemaking. That rulemaking then becomes uh, law or regulation. What's your message to an ordinary person? I saw very little disagreement, actually. Thank you, Elon. Thank you. Thank you. Do you want to have a cage fight with Mark Zuckerberg? Elon Musk leaving Capitol Hill speaking with our Eamon Javers right there. Excellent questioning, grabbing him on his way out. Had a lot to say. He said that he does believe there will probably be some kind of AI regulation, likely not swift, sort of noting how long the regulatory process can take, but he does believe it will go in the right direction. We're going to listen back in. the fragility of human civilization. Um, and if you study history, uh, I think you realize that there's, there's a rise and fall to every civilization. Every civilization has a, a sort of a, a lifespan. Um, and, um, you know, so we want us to last as long as possible. Now Elon Musk is getting in his vehicle and is going ahead and leaving Capitol Hill. Our thanks again to Eamon Javers. That was excellent stuff and some nice questioning to Elon Musk. Uh, Mr. Musk also said that all hands were raised when they were asked if they do believe in some form of regulation for AI. Uh, Carrie, what do you make of all of those comments from Mr. Musk? It's obviously always fascinating when he talks to us about anything on any topic, but this one has a lot of eyeballs on it today.
Yeah, so despite it being a little bit difficult to understand everything he was saying, um, and both because of the sound and, you know, he speaks quickly. <laughs> but um, so, you know, he used the analogy about seatbelts. Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting. Seatbelts obviously save lives, uh, but they're also very simple devices. Sure. You know, it was just around your waist, and right. now it's around your shoulder, and maybe they can improve them a little bit more, but it's basic. Right. And AI and what AI means is so much more complicated. And he didn't use an example of the destructiveness of AI in in that interview. And I'm sure that it could be a sabotage of, of governments and technology being overtaken for um, human destruction and healthcare um, uh, sort of ruin in different ways. But, you know, it's, it's important that we all get to what do we talk about that we need to regulate or control or change or oversight because this is this is widespread ubiquitous and enormous ramifications but we didn't hear anything about that there so okay. I, you know so i listened and as i listened i thought to myself in this country the president of the united states has a cabinet within the cabinet he has executive departments. There's probably 12 to 15 of them. Each executive department has a secretary. We go through all of them, name them. Agriculture, energy, health and human services, yeah. transportation, you don't have education, to name them all, commerce. <laughs> why do we yeah, not yeah, we have, why do we not have a department of technology? Why is there not a secretary of the technology department when technology is the entire U.S. economy or the large part of the U.S. economy. And I think it just shows the lack of understanding that our policymakers truly have about what our economy is and how important technology is. And we're at a moment listening to Elon Musk. I'm not saying it's Elon Musk, but certainly someone who is a technology leader should be in that room with the president when there are cabinet meetings advising on what policy should be for technology. And yes, there absolutely should be regulation related to these technology companies. Yeah, and Elon Musk says maybe there should be a department of AI, but you're suggesting we need to go broader than that. There's so yeah. much more technology that we need to talk about. Obviously, social media has become a point of discussion. Yeah. What should be regulated? What shouldn't be? This is fascinating stuff. We're going to wrap it up here and come back in just a minute. Halftime Report will be back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. You are watching here a live shot of Capitol Hill. We are awaiting more tech leaders to emerge from this meeting that was happening with lawmakers, including Senator Schumer, on AI. We did just hear from Elon Musk, and we will bring you more leaders as they emerge if they stop and talk with us. Welcome back to Halftime. In the meantime, senior markets commentator Mike Santoli does join us at Post 9 with his midday word. Mike, of course, we've got the CPI data here today. Seems to largely play into the broader trend, but there's also a little bit here for everyone. If you're bullish, if you're bearish, 
bearish, if you think the Fed's not going to hike, if you think there could be yeah. reasons they will, what do you make of it? You can find a lot, and a lot of it has to do with really just translating the underlying trend and what does it mean for the PCE, which is what the Fed really watches. I think no big surprises is enough for now uh, to keep the, the broader pattern in place. If you ask why the market is up where it is so far this year, I would answer in simplistic terms, inflation has come down faster than the economy's weakened. Earnings probably have troughed, so it keeps things supported. I just don't think we're getting incremental help from the pace of disinflation at this level. I don't think the Fed's at the center of the story. Hmm. Hasn't been for a while. Fed basically did most of what it had to do by the beginning of this year. And it's, if it does anything more, it's going to be slow, small moves, spaced out. Uh, and so to me, it's more about the 10-year Treasury yield and longer. And can the economy absorb what's going on at, on that front, as well as oil prices? I think that's been the main kind of late cycle anxiety on top of a market that seems like it's just kind of going through a regular seasonal malaise. And obviously oil prices are still elevated, WTI around yeah. 89, but energy is is the lagging sector here today, down more than 1%. Taking a breather, um, energy not really just powering higher at this point. It's the upper end of its range. I still think it's still sort of a leadership group in this market. I'm not that concerned about the level of, of fuel prices for the consumer right now. You know, we were at 380 a gallon national average where we are right now in October of 2012. Okay? Average hourly earnings for non-supervisory workers, $19 an hour then, $29 an hour now. Okay? So that just tells you, same price of gas, we're up from 19 to 29 in terms of the average working person's ability to pay. So that b blunts the, uh, the effect, but it's still not comfortable at a time when people think that uh, we can get this economy dragged down at any moment. Yeah, and obviously, as Steve Leeson brought up earlier, the psychological impact of gas prices yeah. is so powerful. But on America. the other hand, if, you, if you're spending more necessities, you can't fuel as much inflation with your discretionary purchases. That's the way I've always thought about the core spending, too. Okay. So. All right. Well, thank you like very you much. Like you said, you can look at it at I, I know, right? Yeah. Right? Pick, pick your poison yeah. here today. Mike, thank you very much. Well, coming up, counting down to the ARM IPO. We're following the action as the chip designer gets set to price after the bell today. It's going to be a big one. Halftime report back right after this. We're back on halftime and just hours away from what is expected to be some blockbuster news in the IPO world. Chip designer Arm will price after the close today. Our Leslie Picker is following the action for us. Leslie, this one is much anticipated. What are you expecting? <laughs> yes, Corey, it feels like that's an understatement in this IPO market. It's expected to be the biggest IPO in years, one that some hope will help pry open the window that's been shut for the better part of the last two years. Arm's 28 bankers have been able to fill the book many times over, I'm told, but the float will be relatively small compared to the overall size of the business. That's because corporations such as NVIDIA, AMD, Apple, Intel, Google, and Samsung, to name some of them, have indicated interest in buying 730 million worth of that flow. So that leaves just over $4 billion for everyone else out of a company that's expected to be worth uh, about $45 billion. Now, ARM, which designs chips, is expected to price at the high end or above the range it has been marketing, sources say. No final decision has been made, however, as SoftBank, which owns all of ARM at this point, and its bankers track today's markets before officially landing on a price. The shares will be listed on the NASDAQ under the symbol ARM and 
are expected to make their debut tomorrow. Uh, but a successful trading day could bode well for the other IPOs working their way through the process. You've got grocery delivery service Instacart, marketing firm Clavio, all in the middle of their roadshows while shoemaker Birkenstock disclosed his F1 last night. So things are happening, Court, but we'll see how they do. Yeah, very interesting. All sorts of different businesses here looking to the public markets. Leslie, thank you very much. Joe, you have a decent amount of exposure in the chip space. AMD, Applied Materials, Cadence, Microchip, NVIDIA, OnSemi, Skyworks, Texas Instruments. Are you going to dig into this one? I'm very optimistic about this. Okay. Um, and I believe, listen, wow. NVIDIA wanted this company for about $40 billion in, in 2020. So that tells you underneath the market there's certainly demand uh, for for what they they are doing, uh, they're pivoting away from smartphones. They're trying to diversify the business model a little bit more to get involved in the data center. They're involved in uh, Nvidia's AI chips. They're part of the blueprint for that. Um, I do think this is going to be very strong in terms of the demand, and certainly because of the small float, that's going to add to the intensity of the overwhelming strong demand in a in an industry, the semiconductor industry, which we have. Seen in 2023 has been a very strong one. So we'll see where it prices. I'd be very surprised to see it price below a $50 billion valuation. I think this is going to come out. This is going to be a good one. Weiss, I know that you own NVIDIA, obviously, connection here with Arm Holdings. What are your uh, interests, I guess, in digging into Arm Holdings if it does become available for a stock for you to get into? Yeah, I, I think it, look, I've allocated hundreds of deals when I was on the sell side at. at Lehman Brothers and a little bit Solly, and this one is going to be challenging because the most important thing right now is actually not the performance from the company's sake, but the performance for the market's sake in terms of the IPO market. So, so I look forward to actually pretty strong performance from the IPO because of the scarcity, because of the strategic investors. It's got all the right things going on for it. Valuation, they're not giving it away to you, but nonetheless, doesn't mean it won't work. So I think it'll work well, and then you know I'll take a look at it after it settles down in trading. Uh, but you know it's uh, it's an interesting company, a very interesting company. The market's mm -hmm. been anticipating the IPO for a number of years already, and finally coming to market. So so I think you'll see uh, I think you see it do quite well in the aftermarket also. Carrie, obviously a lot of interest in the chip space. Is this one you think going to get as much attention as some of the others that we focus on so much, and should it? Well, chips are up 77% this year as a group, so the market loves them, and it's very smart that these guys are going public today. Uh, whether this is a group that can continue to be on that trend line, I mean, that's tough. Who knows how much inventory has been built up? I mean, we, we really can't imagine that there'll be the same level of demand for these chips over the next six months as there has been over the last six months, and that's a risk. But, you know, good luck to... Uh, Good luck to Arm, and we'll look at it at some price. Uh, not, not today, though. Okay, fair enough. Be sure to catch CNBC's full coverage of the Arm IPO all day tomorrow, and we'll see what happens. I'm sure we'll talk about it on this show as well. Coming up, Adobe having its best year in six ahead of earnings. We've got ownership on the desk. The setup there is next, and we're still watching Capitol Hill as tech CEOs wrap up a meeting on AI. We will bring you more as we get it, hopefully, we'll get some of those folks stopping and talking to us. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Adobe shares are in the green today. The company opening up customer access to AI features and announcing upcoming price hikes. This comes ahead of quarterly results that are out tomorrow. Carrie, you own Adobe. What a run it's had. So congratulations on that. Up 64% year to date. Expectations for tomorrow? Yeah, well, we think that the worst is behind Adobe. You know, it really had a tough time after the Figma acquisition. Investors didn't like it, and the stock came way down. We started to buy it. We bought it a little earlier than the trough, but we did continue to buy more. And as you said, it's had a great year. What we think that we're going to see is a return to double-digit growth on the top and bottom line, at least, and a long runway. Because these AI instruments in a field like content creation, where Adobe is dominant, are ones that can bring new customers in. It's not been the cheapest product to have, but with features that anybody can use, we, you know, we believe that it's going to expand their addressable market and existing customers will use more of these services and that will drive business higher. And so we feel very good about what they're going to say on the quarter and we're looking forward to that tomorrow. Joe, what about you? Also, the um, addition of, of price hikes here, 2 to $5 per month starting in November. Uh, they'll maintain pricing power of that, I'm certain. Uh, this is as Carrie defines the company, a very, very strong company. It's the essence of quality, if you really think about it. Um, for the earnings report, the expectations are high. Let's, let's not dismiss that. Uh, but certainly web traffic, the indications are the web traffic has been strong. The profitability will be there. And I think we're going to see a positive contribution from Firefly. I think they're sticking this too to some of those uh, photography products once you get wrapped in. I don't even know what I'm doing and I just keep paying for the subscription year after year. <laughs> well, stay with us. Final trades from the committee. They're next on Halftime. We're back just in time for final trades. It's been a busy hour. Weiss, you're up first. What do you got for us? I'm going with Uber. I'm going to channel my inner Joe Terranova and talk about tech goals. The chart looks just phenomenal. It's ready to go through 50. And you'll see the valuation go from what's ridiculous now as the calendar turns to a reasonable valuation with exceptional growth in 24. Okay, Carrie, you're up next. Uh, I'll give you Blackstone BX. The stock is on an upturn, was added to the S&P just this week, sells at 16 and a half times earnings of interest rates are peaking. This is a good time to buy the biggest private equity company. And Joe T, bring us home. ICLR, that's Icon, it's a pharmaceutical company. Um, it's, a, it's a clinical research company that services the pharmaceutical industry, $21 billion market cap, raised to overweight 306 price target today by Cowan. Okay, well that does it for halftime. The exchange starts right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report disclaimer. 
From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.